Hello and welcome to Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark, I have a background in English literature and storytelling. And I'm Charlene, I have a background in social work and psychology. This week we are talking about A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, and along with the Muppet rendition, the Muppet Christmas Carol, because I'm not a huge fan of Dickens and I thought it'd be more fun if we could talk about the Muppets. Charlene is also here. <laughs> I mean, you've introduced the topic. I don't have anything to add. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just keep going then. You jump in any time. <laughs> we'll have spoilers for A Christmas Carol and The Muppet Christmas Carol. Okay, who's going to summarize the work this week? Do you want to summarize or do you want me to summarize? You summarized last week, didn't you? Twice. I just feel like I've, like, by the time we get to this point in the podcast, I feel like I've been speaking for so much of it. But don't we do it? Either way, it's fine. So for anyone who hasn't heard the story of A Christmas Carol before, it's a fairly simple story. Strung out with Dickensian prose. An old miser is visited by, I don't know, a, a ghost and three spirits, or four ghosts, or four spirits. I, I don't know. It's the ghost of his previous business partner who's died, and the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future to be... Yet to come. Yet to come, yes. But are one. those ghosts or are they spirits? And is there a difference or does he just mix up the language? I think he the ones that are related to Christmas are definitely spirits. At least he's he refers to them as spirits mostly. But Marley is probably more of a ghost. Okay. We'll get into that later. And he is convinced that he needs to be a better person or bad things will happen to him. And and, and others and others. Um, and then decides to be a better person. And that's the story. Yeah, although, is he really convinced that bad things will happen to him? I mean, I guess that in the afterlife, basically his afterlife will suck and no one will miss him and everyone will be happy he's dead. Which I guess he's not happy about. But... I mean, that doesn't sound like the best case scenario. No, but he seemed pretty happy with his life before. Well, happy might not be the best word, but he didn't Content. seem... He didn't seem to have a problem with the way he was living his life before. Anyway, so that's the look. Yes. The Muppet Christmas Carol is disturbingly accurate to the book for something that contains Kermit the Frog. Yeah, they do definitely take a lot of the words straight from the novel, but they also skip some, I think, important parts. So we'll talk more about that as far as the adaptation. Um, as far as preparation for this, we both read A Christmas Carol, and I spent a large amount of time going, have I read this before? I feel like I've read this before, but I don't think I've read this before. And then we sat down and watched some other Christmas Carol. When I say I read A Christmas Carol, I actually listened to it on LibriVox, which I would recommend. It's a thing where people record books for you'd be able to listen to free, and I listened to it on there. It was pretty good. And free. Yeah, I had read it before, but not in several years, so... And I'd also seen them up at Christmas Carol before, but again, not for several years. So it was nice to refresh my memory of them. And I would recommend going right from reading it to watching the Muppet Christmas Carol, just to see how accurate that actually is to it. Cool, okay, let's get into it. So right off the bat, I kind of just want to pose the question, is this really about Christmas at all? Because I kind of don't think it is. I felt like it was much more a story about capitalism and the importance of human connection and empathy. So, yeah. And, I mean, they do talk about, like, keeping the Christmas spirit all year round, but I 
feel like that's just taking empathy and, you know, having relationships with other people that are meaningful and calling it Christmas spirit for reasons. Yeah. So I think that there's a couple of things with that. I think that there's somewhere in the novella where it mentions that it's a convenient time for the story because it's the story of giving. But also this was being written at a time when like Christmas traditions were sort of up in the air a little bit. So he was sort of trying to define what Christmas spirit was at the same time, if that makes sense. Hmm. Like when I was doing some of the reading up, I was seeing stuff that was like, there's an extent to which a lot of our traditions are to some degree sort of influenced and derived from Dickens's work. Um, Like from feasts and dancing and playing games and that sort of thing. Like a lot of those actually came from here. And this was a point at which they were sort of reviewing what Christmas meant. And it was a revival of the, of Christmas as a thing that people did in general, Hmm. which, cast some interesting lights on things like how unreasonable Scrooge is in going, oh, you want to take the whole day off? I guess that's what people are doing today. He's effectively going, ugh, millennials. Mm-hmm. And Rob Cratchit goes, okay, then we're going to write fan fiction. So. Okay. A millennial Christmas carol. No? I mean, I do think that you could definitely do that because a lot of the themes are very relevant now because there's a lot of very strong messaging in here about, you know, not equating money and value. Like just because something doesn't provide you or yield money as an end result doesn't mean it's not valuable or worth your time. Most especially activities and priorities that involve other people, you know, cultivating relationships, spending time with people, things like that. You know, Scrooge at the beginning in particular is like pretty heavy handed about that. He's like, what right have you to be merry? You're poor enough to which his nephew responds, you know, what right have you to be dismal? You're rich enough. And it's very much saying like that money can't buy happiness, but also just because you're broke doesn't mean you can't be happy and enjoy yourself sometimes. Like there are a lot of things in here where they're also kind of picking apart the idea that poor equals idle or like or undeserving or you know worthless in a lot of ways which is messaging that we still have a whole lot of problems with and which was very much intensified like during like the reagan period and things like that so there's still a lot of stigma to being poor now that you're also kind of seeing here when it's like no you kind of need to think about the fact that these are all human beings and working hard isn't always enough and you know you should not write people off just because they're poorer than you are yeah i think it's said weirdly slightly more explicitly in the muppet version than in dickens original one of the like christmas being foreclosure season because people are spending money on christmas instead of on their rent mm-hmm. and it's that same sort of thing as like the people who get angry when they see someone buy a steak on food stamps because mm-hmm. it's like well no you're poor you can't possibly have a reason to have a nice thing once like yeah and though you shouldn't judge what someone's doing with their benefits because m- maybe it's their birthday and that's they they saved up and not bought other things so they can have that one thing like other people's budgets are their business sort of thing. Yeah, and you see things like that going around fairly often, and I think that it says something positive about my friend circle that I often mostly see things pushing back yeah. against it. Things like okay, I'm seeing this kind of crap going around Facebook, being upset about people using food stamps or 
you know, things like that to, and wearing decent clothes and like whatever. And it's like, okay, no, get, get out of that person's business. You don't know their situation. You don't know where they got the things that they have. You don't, people do not need to be like in rags to prove, they don't have it to prove anything to you for you to just not judge them. Yeah. I think you're referencing one of the ones that went around recently, Mm -hmm. like just because someone's wearing designer clothes doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that they can't be in a situation where they have to be begging because mm-hmm. people do donate designer clothes to shelters. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have anything more to add on the Christmas spirit thing before we get any further away from that? Well, just that, you know, the things that it's talking about, I don't think are really about Christmas. Like when yeah. they're talking about keeping the Christmas spirit all year, I think that really does prove my point of, no, what they're talking about is, you know, staying in touch with your family, visiting them sometimes, being a decent supervisor or a boss, you know, paying people enough that they can have a decent living, respecting that sometimes people need time off, you know. Supporting the needy in your community. Yeah, exactly. It's trying to support causes to benefit people who need help, you know, in your community to give charitably, to th- do things like that. So, and that's, that is stuff that's relevant all year. But I do see your point, and I guess also Dickens' point of, like, it's a good time to kind of remind people that those are important things that they should value and make sure that they are you know, paying attention to in their communities and yeah. in, their, in their actions, so. Okay. What do you want to talk about? Well, I know you said that there was some storytelling, like how they to- tell the story elements that you definitely wanted to talk yeah. about in this, and I can definitely say a few things on, on some of those, too. What do I have that is storytelling related? Well, I think we can at least start with the narration style and, like, the ways that the narrating is a big part of the story. Yeah. Like, how, how do you think it's interesting? In both the novel and the Muppet Christmas Carol, I definitely notice a lot of fourth wall breaking used in the narration, like from the narrator point of view, where that is also a character. And explicitly in the Muppet version, obviously Rizzo and Gonzo, Gonzo specifically, are narrating and are like comic relief and constantly pointing out their fourth wall breaking. Yeah. But you see that in a slightly more subtle way, but still very apparent way in the book. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think it's really interesting with the original version because I know that, I don't know whether he intended it when he first wrote it, but he, he being Dickens, did a lot of like public readings of it like he would yeah. read it in cafes and things like that which is one way to spend five or six hours of your day i guess <laughs> well that's how he made most of his money yeah was through performances rather than royalties so um, makes sense but like he apparently did like 130 readings or something in that ballpark so it gets this sort of like very personal feel with the telling like Mm -hmm. he's sort of like there's a couple of times it's almost sort of a wink wink nudge nudge sort of situation with the audience Mm -hmm. um and he's speaking very much directly to you which must have lent itself very well to that public reading forum and i wonder how much he had that in mind when he was writing it very possibly i i definitely agree with you about how that sort of narrative style brings the reader in and I definitely, like, I did have a note about that, like, that the narrative style makes the story about the reader. Like, I think it aids with this very clear message where it's like, this is supposed to apply to everyone. This is supposed to apply to you. I'm actually reading the story to you, the reader, so that you will value 
you know, generosity and charity and, you know, helping with those less fortunate and letting people enjoy things and trying to be a part of enjoying things with other people, you know, being involved in celebration and community. And I also thought that it sort of extends further on, like through the story, where I feel like in some ways the way that the story is told is making the reader is Scrooge. It's a warning to the reader in the same way that it's a warning to Scrooge, but it also kind of makes the narrator Marley in some ways, because Marley is the mm. specter from outside of life trying to warn Scrooge about the consequences, and the narrator yeah. is the specter outside this story trying to warn us, the readers, about the consequences of living a life like Scrooge's. Yeah, because I suppose within like the spirit bits mm -hmm. yes visitations uh, yes during the visitations um like scrooge is largely absent and is just the point of view location for the scenes that are going on mm -hmm. in the same way as the reader especially where, in the book yeah well as you say like marley turns up and says hey this is what's going to happen and you need to take heed of it mm -hmm. and Dickens is maybe less directly saying to the audience, yeah, no, I agree with you. That's, that's fair. I've, I've agreed with you by restating half of what you said. <laughs> Go me. Hey, we'll work things out through things in our own way. No, that's a really good point. Um, I think that, like, how clearly Dickens is trying to convey the message, like, I think it's illustrated very clearly by a conversation we had when we were talking about how we were going to do this episode. We were trying to decide on our big question, mm -hmm. and we usually decide on those partially by saying, well, what's the, what's the big question that the author's asking? Mm -hmm. And there's not a big question in the Christmas Carol. It's just a statement. It, mm -hmm. like, it's a, a warning. A declaration of this. He's not setting things up and saying, well, what do you think about a reader? He's very much telling you what to think. So. Yeah, he's saying if you are a miserly, terrible boss who isolates himself and never well, connects with other people, you will, you know, suffer in hell and regret not having taken advantage of your opportunities to engage with the, meaningfully with other people in the world. Well, that would be taking it to extremes. I mean, I suppose it's more... It, Hey, if you see any sort of similarities between yourself and Scrooge, maybe you should address that. But well, I mean the the ghosts part in particular. I really think that he's trying to warn you. Like the misery with them all was clearly that they sought to interfere for good in human matters and had lost the power forever. And I really think that's the bottom line here. It's like while you're alive, you have the chance to do good in the world. You have a chance to affect other people in a positive way, and you know, grow and be nourished by those connections. And if you waste those opportunities, they're not coming back. Yeah. It's fear of missing out. Huh. Like when you die, you will have the worst FOMO imaginable because you were a jerk and just stayed isolated and, you know, didn't share. Think of how short this story would be if Dickens could have just said FOMO. Mm-hmm. Okay, you were going to say something about puns. Oh, not specifically puns, although those are definitely there, but I definitely also, while we're talking about like the way the story is told, obviously the incredible detail. <laughs> There's a lot of really detailed description, which I think is fine in this because it's a pretty short story, but I do get your point when we've talked about Dickens in the past and you have a hard time with it because you feel like it's overly descriptive. And I understand that. 
if this were a much longer or more complex story, I think that that would bog it down a lot, like that level of description throughout. But what I was going to say was there's some clever and fun wordplay in it, which I, which made me smile. Like, um, there's a point toward the beginning where Scrooge is clearly, if you think about it, he was going to say, see you in hell, but he really liked kind of talks around it in a weird way. And it's kind of hilarious. Do you remember what he says instead? Oh, I'm trying to, it's very early. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, don't do that. Seriously. I do um, it to myself as well. Yeah, but it's annoying. What's he say it to? Either to his uncle or to his nephew or to the guys who are asking him for charitable donations for Christmas. Oh, here we go. I found it. You did? Yeah. So here it is. He's talking to his nephew who's invited him to come for Christmas. It's his only sister's child and his only surviving family. And he's a cheery person and, and, you know, happy about Christmas. But uh, so he asks him to dinner. He's like, don't be angry, uncle. Come dine with us tomorrow. Scrooge said that he would see him. Yes, indeed, he did. He went the whole length of the expression and said that he would see him in that extremity first. So it's just like Dickens is very carefully not saying Scrooge told his nephew he'd see him in hell. But he's also very clearly saying Scrooge told his nephew, I'll see you in hell before I come over for Christmas. Yeah, and, like, it sort of gives given away because, like, there's quite a lot of speech in the book, but there's very little of it that's just reported speech. Like, most of it's in quotes. It's not a lot of, the, like, this structure where it's, like, and then he, and then this guy said that that would, sounded fine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, that sounds good, said Scrooge. Mm-hmm. So, well, Scrooge kind of says that sounds good for a whole host of reasons, but anyway. And there's the, uh... When he, Scrooge is trying to tell, like, suggest that Marley is just a figment of his imagination, is that mm-hmm. there's more of gravy about you than the grave. Right, as he's just been saying, like, uh, Marley's like, why don't you trust your senses when Scrooge is, you know, disbelieving of the visitation? And Scrooge is basically like, oh, well, I mean, any number of things can mess up with your senses if you're, you know, you could have eaten a bad bit of beef and. You know, there's more gravy to you than grave, and which is pretty funny. And they, I love that they keep it in the Muppet Christmas Carol, who where they have Statler and Waldorf, the heckling guys who are always at the top of the Muppet show, making fun of the show, playing the Marley Brothers visiting yeah. Scrooge. So it's perfect for them. Like the back and forth with Scrooge is, you know, they're just messing with him and telling him what a terrible person he is, and how and laughing about what terrible people they were. And the Marley and Marley song is the best song in the film as well. No? I don't really remember it that much, and uh, we just watched it earlier. I do have an issue with their visitation, though, in terms of comparison to the adaptation, in terms of comparison to the book, because their song and, like, their visitation of Scrooge in The Muppet Christmas Carol, they don't actually seem particularly remorseful or regretful of, like, their bad deeds. Like, they kind of pay lip service to the idea of, oh, you know, we're here to warn you, and, you know, you're just as chained as we are, and it. And it's good to be doing something, you know, other than being dead. But they seem pretty jolly and, like, laugh heartily about all the misery they inflict on other people with their greed. See, the thing is that, like, I don't really feel that the Marley in the book is particularly remorseful either. He's sad that he's weighed down by this big old chain and that he's moving for forever and can't rest, can't have any peace. But he never really seems repentant of the things that he did because of other people he said that he got caught 
See, I definitely think that the Marleys in Muppet Christmas Carol are sad that they got caught. Like, they're, they think all the stuff they did was hilarious and how all the evict people they evicted and, and, oh, you know, remember that time we evicted the whole orphanage and they were all out with their frostbitten stuffed animals or whatever? It's like, oh, wow, okay, you guys are terrible. But, and, but they're like, oh, but now we're weighed down in the afterlife and that kind of sucks. So I see what you mean there. But when Marley is visiting Scrooge in the book, he talks about being like crying because he wants to help people. Like he's he's in the real world. He sees the suffering of others and he wants to help, but he can't because he's mm -hmm. dead. And he's like regretful because he could have helped people in situations like that when he was alive and he didn't. Okay. So I'm going to try and find one of the points where he talks about that. He, he goes on to this rant, which I think is really important in terms of summarizing the entire story, but he says, Not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one's life's opportunities misused, yet such was I, oh such was I. And Scrooge is like, oh, but you were always a good man of business, Jacob. Business, cried the ghost, wringing his hands again. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Um. At this time of the rolling year, I suffer most. Why did I walk through the crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never raise them to that blessed star which led the wise men to a poor abode? Were there no poor homes to which its light would have conducted me? And so he definitely acknowledges yeah. his real punishments, not the chains, but the missed opportunities of life to help other people and to be a better person. I misread that business quote when I was reading slash listening to it. Yeah, no, you make a good point. So, but they don't have anything really like that in The Muppet Christmas Carol, and I think it does take a lot of the impact of the visitation out. They don't, like, Statler and Waldorf as the Marley brothers don't really seem to be regretful of their past greed and avarice. Yeah. Well, they take a lot of the nuance out in the film, which is fairly standard. It's a little bit strange because traditionally you'll see that, like, the best adaptations of written word to film comes from, like, short stories mm -hmm. um, because they tend to not have so much to try and cram in. Yeah. Um, like, The Shawshank Redemption was a short story first. I didn't know that. Yeah. But with the adaptation of this, which is, well, a novella, it's a novella by Dickens, so, like, 80% of it is random descriptions. It, he's as bad as George R. R. Martin. Well, George R. R. Martin is as bad as he is. Was. Mm. But you lose a lot of the Scrooge character arc. I agree. Because in the film, the first scene that you see through the visitations is... Scrooge in the schoolhouse almost comically being like, ah, Christmas sucks mm -hmm. because he doesn't go home for it. Like, he's established as having always hated Christmas and then, like, at the office party that he's at, like, he's coming in and concerned about how much it's costing and it's he's always been greedy. Mm -hmm. And it makes it a little bit strange when then, like, his fiance leaves him and is like well there was this time when you could sort of focus on things that weren't just money and now all you care about is money and i'm not really here for that okay. when what they've just shown us is that he's always been pretty concerned with money since before he met you uh -huh. 
also talking of wordplay, I think Dickens really spent all night with naming the love interest Belle. Um, yeah, that was not exactly the most creative yeah, naming choice. Yeah, in the story, he does have a much more detailed and nuanced backstory, you know, as shown through the visitations from the ghosts of Christmas past. And you see that as a child, he was pretty isolated at the holidays because he usually didn't go home because his parents wouldn't let him come home because his father was abusive. Yeah, Like well, his father wouldn't let him come home. It's not outright stated that he's abusive. Yeah. Um, and like, it might just be our modern day eyes reading that. It could just be a, it's easier to ship you off to boarding school than have you challenge me on anything. It's type mentality. But either way, it wasn't great. Yeah. I mean, it, you see that like in the first one, his sister comes to pick him up and it's his younger sister and she's like, I, you know, our father's seems to have been in a much better mood lately. And I managed to convince him to have you home for the holidays. And it's like clearly a rare occurrence for him to come home for the holidays. And so, yeah, you can see why he would not necessarily feel included and welcome in holiday traditions if he was usually sidelined from them as a child. He, there was also a great quote where it really shows the way that he sort of intellectualizes and and sort of retreats into like intellectual pursuits and things that have like a concrete method to avoid painful feelings um the truth is that he tried to be smart as a means of distracting his own attention and keeping down his terror which is just classic intellectualizing and so you you see this picture instead of like this sad lonely child who's been excluded from holiday celebrations yeah which is much sadder and from people in general. Yeah. The the issue I take with the original portrayal, and it's sort of this, like, you you want to know how did Scrooge become Scrooge? Mm-hmm. Like, what made him this way? Because you see him as a child, like, he's tortured in these ways. Tortured in quotes. But then when he's at Fezziwig's party, mm-hmm. he really appreciates what's being done for him, recognises, even as his older self, like, the importance of what was being done mm-hmm. and like it didn't cost his boss much but it meant a lot for him and his co-workers mm-hmm. um and at that point he seems fairly well balanced understands charity mm-hmm. happy all these things and enjoying a christmas party and then you go from there to a point when his fiance is breaking up with him because he's only obsessed with money i think the missing thing there is the death of his sister because you know that is it Fred? What's his nephew's name? Yeah, Fred. Fred's his only living relative, and his sister loved Christmas. And, like, his one of his fondest childhood memories is being able to go home for Christmas with her. And she clearly instilled her children with the love of the holidays. And But at some point, she's died, and he's refusing to engage with Fred in any way. And so I think maybe he stopped being able to enjoy it when she died like that was the person who kind of made him feel connected to the holidays and made him feel connected to other people yeah the timeline isn't entirely clear i guess that that might work out but that still doesn't necessarily explain the obsession with money i think it's a coping mechanism it's something he also like i think it also is implied that they didn't have a lot of money when he was growing up and like i think it's one of the conversations with bell or something of like he's It starts out as he wants to be financially stable. And because of that, he kind of, he never feels secure. And I think think there is some implication that that comes from 
never having felt taken care care of or financially secure when he was young. Mm. But I don't know. That's that's as good an explanation as I can see. It it doesn't feel like it's explicitly in the text. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. there's a like they definitely also show that he at the holidays like he felt left out and he was lonely and he would read books to kind of keep himself company. Yeah. So it's that intellectualizing. It's that retreating from other people. At a point when a lot of people are coming together, he's developed a habit of withdrawing. Yeah. I think that the other things that the adaptation sort of loses a bit of with that making him... They paint him as such a villain from the start. They don't just, like, forefront some of the bad stuff he does. They they start adding in other things. Yeah. Like, mailing out the eviction notices on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's, there's the quip where Kermit the Frog, Bob Cratchit, is like, but tomorrow's Christmas. And he's like, then you can gift wrap them, which is just so fucked up. <laughs> like, Yeah. In the book, it's not until the third ghost that you hear about any of his kind of shitty business practices. Mm-hmm. Or like, unpleasant business practices, because there's the couple, like, mm-hmm. the, the only people who are happy that he's gone. Or, mm-hmm. no. Who have any sort of emotional response yeah. to his death. Yeah. Um, other people that like, he was foreclosing on, and, like, they're going, well, you know, this will mean that it will take a while for someone else to pick up the debt, and hopefully they won't be as unpleasantly tight-fisted as he was. And also, we'll have the money, like, we were only a little late on the money, we'll have it by then, so, yeah. But otherwise, like, you've seen that he doesn't treat treat his employees well, you've seen that he doesn't give to charity, Mm -hmm. but then you find out that, it's not until the third act you find out that he's also shitty to people through his business. Which makes sense, but it's not stated. Whereas in the film, like, from the very off, like, there's a guy there asking for more time for his rent, and mm-hmm. he's, like, literally throws him out the door. And in the openings, like, the, the movie starts off with the song that's just talking about how terrible yeah. a person Scrooge is, and, like, making all sorts of, you know, unkind comparisons between him and other stuff. And one of the parts is, you know, that he charges too much for his very tiny shitty like housing i guess like he owns a bunch of housing yeah that like low rent housing that he rents for way more than it's worth and doesn't take care of and doesn't keep the property like it seems unsafe so yeah like you they definitely tell you right at the beginning nope this guy everything he's doing he's he's looking at the profit line and has no consideration for how any of his choices affect other people yeah and the film does very much state, like, Scrooge became this way because he was lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's it. It's done. Like, he didn't have other people, so he became like this. So they... Oh, they, they in that song, though, like, there's a point where some people are singing, like, um, talking about how he's isolated and, like, probably under there there's a sweet guy. And then they're like, nah. Um, so, like, they do kind of try and hint at, like, oh, well, you know, there's probably a reason and... You know, I'm sure that there's some good in this man. And then they're like, nope. Yeah. And the other thing that that misses out because it does those things is that in the book, you get these nice bits where very early on, he's being shown his past and he's going, oh, gee, this makes me like the most obvious point is when he's like standing watching or like thinking about Fezziwig as a boss and Mm -hmm. like how he treated him and stuff. And it's like, 
Uh, yeah, it'd be nice if I could say something to Bob Cratchit right now. Yeah. Um, those moments where he's already, like, from the off developing and mm-hmm. becoming more sympathetic and caring. Yeah. Whereas in the film, like, you don't really get any of that until later on. Yeah. Which means that you don't get it until he's confronted with his own mortality. Right. And it's pretty consistent through his visitation with Christmas past and present. Like, he, there's a point where, you know, he sees carolers or something and he's like oh, i shouldn't have been such a jerk to that caroler who tried to sing at my office earlier and things like that you know and there's a quote about the you know being a good boss that i also thought was really he has the power to render us happy or unhappy to make our service light or burdensome a pleasure or a toil when he's talking about fezziwig as a boss and just about the role of being someone's employer and I think that is a reflection that he starts to kind of feel on himself of like, oh, this isn't even just my role. This is also a responsibility. And like, it does carry on to other people. Yeah. And I also think some of those themes are definitely echoed in the chains that Marley has, both in the mm. movie and in the and in the book. Because in the book, they're described as being made out of like cash boxes and keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses, rotten steel. And Marley says they were forged in life by free will and that Scrooge had one just as bad as Marley's when Marley died and had been wor- has been working on it in like the seven years since. So very much implying like, yeah, as badly as I'm suffering and as terrible of a person I have been through my pursuit of wealth, you're even worse because you've been doing it longer. And I think that definitely ties into this idea that, like, if you are somebody's boss, somebody's supervisor, somebody's employer, it's important for you to recognize that there's more to that than just your profit margin. And when you're not looking at the people you're affecting, you are, you know, doing ill in the world. You're doing bad things. And that that shit runs downhill. You know, like, it's not just your employee who suffers. It's their family it's your community and things like that so and they they kind of talk about that there are other ghosts like scrooge doesn't just see marley when marley's there he sees like all the spirits who are like similarly guilty um so some few they might be guilty governments were linked together none were free um and it goes on later the misery with them all was clearly that they sought to interfere for good in human matters and had lost the power forever i like the nod to guilty governments it's like that this isn't even just a thing that individuals do. It's a thing that larger groups of people like corporations and governments do when they stop seeing the people on the other side of the numbers. Yeah. This story still resonates really well today, which is really upsetting. When Dickens is sitting there as a sometimes well-off author, depending on which year it was. Um, yeah, he definitely went up and down in fortune. He, um, he's got there from... Like, when he's talking about workhouses and things like that, he he knows what he's talking about because he was a child labourer. I think he had a fairly cushy job of putting labels on glue pots, which I'm sure filled nothing that would be in any way toxic or carcinogenic. But Mm -hmm. he came from a fairly poor family, was working very hard on these things. And, like, I think I was reading that shortly before he wrote the story, he'd been visiting a poor house or something and was Mm -hmm. just like, this isn't okay so like he's not idly calling for social change he's doing quite seriously now obviously the problems that we face today are different Mm -hmm. but still severe 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the opening of the Christmas Carol Muppet version is really nicely done to bring that as a still current concern with you have Gonzo and Rizzo with their little apple cart stall mm-hmm. thing, and Rizzo's there eating the merchandise, and Gonzo's like, "What? What are you doing?" You're, they won't last long uh, with you eating them like that. Yeah, and then Rizzo's like, "Oh no, I'm creating scarcity. Yeah. Like, drive up the price because you're getting rid of your own stuff." And yeah, that's um, yeah. Yeah, and um, you're not thinking about the fact that that means that those apples are more expensive for the families who have to buy them, and that means they buy less food, and that means their families have less to eat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like it's not just that you're making more money off that apple sale. And I mean, it's it's not apples; it's more of a luxury good. But with mm-hmm. the diamond industry, oh yeah, um, di- diamonds are not a rare commodity, but diamond industry would love you to think that, so they don't let them out at much of a pace, um, and people die mining them. It's um yeah the more things change mm-hmm. yeah definitely yay we were on such a cheery podcast indeed this week on why the world is fuck yeah but i mean it all kind of points to this idea that you know not only that can money not buy happiness but it should never be the end of your focus like money is a measure of potential it's a placeholder for exchanging things back and forth it is in itself meaningless. We, it's really how you use it. And like, there's, you know, what good is it if you're not making yourself comfortable with it, if you're not doing any good with it in your community, money on its own, sitting in a bank account or sitting in a vault doesn't do any good for anyone. It's how you use it. Yeah. Like so many things. And that, that's well illustrated by the fact that like, we're never told how much money Scrooge has got hidden away, but at the end of the book, it's not any question for him to do quite a lot with that money um and i mean they go a step further in the muppets one where he's like pays off bob cratchit's mortgage and things but yeah yeah i mean it's i think it's definitely pointing to this idea that just hoarding your wealth is an immoral thing to do because money can do good in the community and that's what it's for like what is what is wealth for but to help other people yeah um, I mean, th- this is perhaps a frivolous use of this, but it's just one of those things that I listened to while listening to the book and was just like, huh. But it was just the, uh, when he's railing about the, when Scrooge is railing about having to have the day off for Christmas. Mm. says, a poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December, said Scrooge, buttoning his grey coat to the chin. But I suppose you must have the whole day be here all the earlier the next morning. And uh, I work in retail and I will be... Getting off at about seven or eight o'clock in the evening on Christmas Eve, get let out early that day, and they want me back there at five a.m. on the day after Christmas, so that I can move the store around so they can have all their sales. Yep, which means you have to get up at three a.m. Which means if you were to get a good night's sleep, you'd have to get go to bed at like seven p.m., which is just not going to happen because people have things to do on Christmas with, say, their families and stuff. But never mind. Yeah, so. When I read that particular part, the, like, you know, his resentment of holiday pay and characterizing it as, like, picking his pocket, that really sounded just so libertarian to me. Mm. And just this idea that, like, I shouldn't have to do anything for anyone else in a just obnoxious way. And I can understand some problems with holiday pay, partially because we don't have a national religion and we don't have a national language and all this, but we treat 
Christianity like a national yeah. religion here. And I can understand a lot of people who maybe aren't Christian being kind of resentful of the fact that this one religious group's holidays are made way for in like all aspects of our society, like Christmas and Easter are holidays or like national holidays and everyone gets them off and most places it's a paid day off. Whereas it can be a huge pain to get the major holidays and holy days off in for other faiths, if not impossible. Yeah, I, as I mentioned in a previous episode, we're both pagan. And if we're celebrating Christmas, really what we're doing is celebrating Yule four days late because everyone is ready to celebrate on the 25th and it's hard to get the 21st off. Yeah. So I can understand that. I can understand the issue with having to pay holiday pay for people when we really shouldn't even have national holidays affiliated with a specific religion. But in terms of like paid time off and paid like holidays for people to use as they want, like that is part of sharing the profit of the enterprise you have yeah. and part of making sure that everyone's able to benefit from what is being generated in their labor. Well, I think it's even more clearly in, um, shown in how he disdains the fact that he has to, like his taxes are going to pay for jails and poorhouses, therefore he's doing enough already. Right. Um, and the, the poor, like, Anyone who needs to should just go to those places and otherwise they should die and stop being a problem. Right. And that in particular, the like, well, you know, because the what you're talking about is when the people are like trying to collect charitable donations. And there are issues with charity because the need for charity is a reflection on what we're not doing well enough in our society. But there should not be a need for charity. People should be more supportive of social services that, you know enable people to not need it. But so what you're talking about is when people come to ask him for charitable donations and he's like, no, I already give enough through my taxes to support what he's essentially saying, like deadbeats, you know, people who he has decided are not worthy of life. And really it's not his business to decide who should die and who should live. And that's what he's saying. And that's what's thrown in his face by the ghost of Christmas present because he then sees that his employer, his employee's son, uh, Tiny Tim, is really ill. He's already infirm. Like, it looks like one of his legs doesn't work properly, and he's got bad lungs, and so he's coughing all the time. And he's like, oh, like, you know, is he going to die? Asking the spirit. And the spirit essentially is like, I mean, I don't know for sure, but it, it looks pretty likely. And says, you know, but if, if he's going to die, you should get on with it and reduce the surplus population, which is what Scrooge had said before yeah. to the guys soliciting charity when they said that there were some people who would rather die than go to the, the workhouses and or to the jails. And so... At that point, he's been confronted with the people he was talking about are right in front of him now. And he can see that they're human beings, they're children, they are people who he has a connection to. They're human beings. They're not just these faceless masses of undesirables or whatever. I actually have the quote here. It's, man, said the ghost, if man you be in heart, not adamant, forbear, that wicked can't until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven, you are more worthless and less fit to live than a million like this poor man's child. Yeah, exactly. 
you know, he's making these flippant statements and, you know, he thinks that he's being so smart and talking, you know, so into, you know, he's intellectualizing this problem and forgetting that there are people on the other end of those numbers. Yeah. It's the, I, I'm more, I'm more important and more worthy because I'm rich. Right. And it goes right back to what we were talking about before, at least what I was, you know, running on about before <laughs> about, about money not being inherently valuable and it not being the measure of what makes something else valuable. Yeah. I feel like we may have had enough of our podcast be Charlotte and Mark's social views hour. And rant about capitalism and hoarding. Uh, what else do you want to talk about? Well, just like the... We were talking before about the path that Scrooge kind of takes to hating Christmas and being really miserly. Mm-hmm. And I definitely... I know I always talk about trauma and like people's coping skills, but I mean, when all you have is a hammer... Be fascinated to see what the drinking games for this would look like. I think that if there are any drinking rules associated with words like trauma or toxic masculinity, then we might be responsible for some hospitalizations. It also seems like it might be a little bit on the nose to have a drinking game about toxic masculinity. Yeah. <laughs> oh wait, um, hang on. Do we talk about toxic masculinity in this episode? We need to find a way of working that in somewhere. <laughs> I mean, we don't, and I think that's fine. Okay. I don't think that's really something that's particularly... I'm, I think we could reach if we wanted, but I don't think there's a need to do that. We'll, we'll get you get it back on there next week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, maybe not. That's the great. I mean, I kind of alluded to this before, but, you know, it does seem like through his childhood of kind of getting... Being neglected, especially at Christmas time, because everyone leaves the boarding school, but the kids who don't go home, and so then he's by himself, and he's just is reading and he has nothing but his intelligence for company and he's broke. And so he starts to kind of feel like he needs to become self-sufficient and not need anyone. And, you know, that means financially and that means emotionally. He becomes fixated on becoming self-sufficient and becoming a good businessman, which is a thing that, you know, he tries to comfort himself with talking to Marley of like, oh, but you were such a good businessman and like thinking to himself and like, that's what I'm modeling myself on. And so it's just in trying to be immune to alienation by other people and trying to be immune to the poverty that he, I guess, grew up in, he ends up alienating other people who do care about him, like his nephew and his former fiance. And just completely loses sight of why he wanted to build up financial assets in the first place. Because, like, his fiance Belle, says he had all these financial benchmarks because he wanted to be able to marry her and set up a good household. But because he gets so obsessed, you know, she says, you know, he'll resent her for not bringing any money into the marriage. Like, they got engaged when they were both poor and okay with a life where they weren't wealthy. Like, that's one of the things that she says in the conversations, like, when we started this relationship, you had noble aspirations, and we were okay if we were never going to be rich, but you've lost sight of that, and I'm worried that you won't see me as valuable because I don't have money, and all you seem to value is money. And it's interesting because it moves forward to show a scene of her Mm -hmm. with her family after the years have passed and she's gone off with someone else, and, like, she seems pretty happy. Yeah, and she has just loads and loads of kids, and they're yeah. all very rambunctious, and everyone's very happy, and everything's very chaotic. I don't remember whether they appear to be particularly well off, but I don't think that 
matters to her in that point. Yeah, I don't remember it indicating that she wasn't well off, but I don't remember it indicating that she was either. Like, they seem, they're okay. Like, she's got, you know, a house full of children and they're all happy and they're all healthy. And that's very much what's important in that scene because that's what's important to her. And it's what Scrooge turned his back on when he got so caught up in trying to build up his wealth. Yeah. Have we talked about money enough now? I think so. So I want to talk a little bit about the way that religion does and doesn't come up in the book. You'd expect A Christmas Carol to be quite a lot about Christmas. Maybe maybe a reference to Jesus in there somewhere. There is one. There are a couple. Oh, there are a couple? Yeah. But they're all very sideways. Like no, The name is never used. Like no. I think it's like... Um, there's a reference to, like, oh, you know, the, the guy that, like, the season is for or something. There are several like that. Right. And they're all like that. So there's the reference at the beginning where um, Marley is saying, oh, was there not a star to lead me to a poor abode? And that's clearly a reference to the Star of Bethlehem. The, the quote I read earlier, like, that's a reference yeah. to the Star of Bethlehem and, you know, leading the wise men to Jesus in the manger. There's the bit where Tiny Tim... Bob Cratchit is telling his wife that in church, Tiny Tim had said that he thought it might cheer people up to see him because seeing him like limping and using his crutch might remind people of Jesus. You know, he who made, you know, blind men beggar, was it blind men walk or no, no, not blind. He who made, yeah. Anyway, I don't think it's necessary, but essentially to remind people of Jesus healing the sick and everything so well i thought that it was also like an extent to which that was a uh, like reminding people that the needy are out there sort of thing but well it was specifically a reference to jesus yeah it would remind people of him who made lame men walk and blind men see i think is what it was yeah but overall there's like the jesus and christ are never used in the book mm-hmm. i don't think that there's much in the way of reference to god and then there's a nice piece where, and this is another statement about where where society is, and it's it's still there with where Scrooge is saying to people, well, uh, saying to the ghost of you know, the spirit of Christmas present, why do you close like effectively the shelters and stuff on Sundays when people might need them more, like the shops or the food kitchens or something like? Why do you close them on a Sunday when people need them the most? And the spirit responds that you know that. You seek to close these places on the seventh day, said Scrooge, and it comes to the same thing. I seek, exclaimed the spirit. Forgive me if I am wrong, it has been done in your name, or at least in that of your family, said Scrooge. There are some upon this earth of yours, returned the spirit, who lay claim to know us, and who do their deeds of passion, pride, ill will, hatred, envy, bigotry, and selfishness in our name, who are as strange to us and all our kith and kin, as if they had never lived. Remember that and charge their doings on themselves, not us. Right, and this is Christmas present, and when he's talking about his kin, he's talking about all the other Christmases, I guess? Well, that's the thing that's not clear, is that it seems... Or of gods, maybe? Right, it's the you and yours, spirits, supernatural Mm -hmm. powers, whatever Mm -hmm. they may be, but not God Almighty and Mm -hmm. those who... And, you know, the angels and all that jazz. The spirits themselves being a fairly, fairly non-Christian image. You get one or two. It really depends on what type of Christianity you're talking about. I don't know enough about types of Christianity. Well, there are a lot of 
different religious groups that believe in the Christian God and Jesus, but also believe in intermediary spirits. Okay. My ignorance, I apologize. Do you have anything to say about religion? I do think it's interesting how it's always sort of mentioned sideways and like not ever really directly invoked. Like it's not that the spirit of Christmas involves going to church regularly or, you know, having a nativity scene or even just praising Jesus at like the holiday feast or anything. Although people do toast, people do allude to him in toasts. Right. That's like it. So it's, I think it does kind of reinforce what I was saying before about this not feeling so much to me like a story about Christmas per se, like the holiday and like the idea of the holiday, so much as the idea of the value system that is supposed to be paramount during the season and should be something we're aware of all the time, like just how important it is to think about the way our actions affect others and make sure that we stay connected to each other in our community. Yeah. I think that it's, um, it's like my take on the whole happy holidays thing where people are like, ah, oh, you can't say Merry Christmas, all that jazz. And it's like, it's what people mean when they say happy holidays, Merry Christmas, or anything else is, I wish you well at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to make a fight about that then all you're saying is that you have to believe the exact same things that I do um, and I feel that what Dickens is saying here by not including going to church or praising any sort of thing during mm-hmm. this is that it's not about that it's about wishing other people well. Mm-hmm. Although he's not saying like it's okay to do whatever because Scrooge says to Fred like you keep Christmas your way and I'll keep it in mine and Fred is like but you don't keep it And so I think that what's being stated there is it's not a specific holiday or even like any specific tradition, but you should be doing something that acknowledges other people and engages with other people and like values each other and community. So, cause he's saying, let me do it, do Christmas my way. And Fred's like, you're not doing anything. You're just sitting there by yourself in your dank apartment. (laughs) When we're taking Christmas as a shorthand of, supporting your community you can't support your community by not doing anything because that is not supporting your community yeah the last thing and this is something that i think you have more knowledge on is there any way to argue christmas present as being a green man figure i would definitely say so like the i think there's a lot of imagery surrounding the christmas present as being this icon of plenty and of, you know, I mean, literally, they think they make reference to the cornucopia in Mm. the description, and he also ages immediately, which there's a whole tradition of, like, the Oak King and the Holly King transitioning on the solstice as transition from the shortest day of the year and to the point where the days start getting longer. So it's all about the return of the sun. And so it's at that turning point. And then you also have this Christmas present spirit who is rapidly aging and passing on and moving and making way for something else immediately at this point. So do you want to give a quick definition of green man for anyone who might not be familiar? Sure. Um, But it's a little complicated because the green man is not really one thing. It's more of a type of deity that's cropped up in a lot of different 
cultures and a lot of different religions around the world. Um, it's sort of this idea of like a vegetative deity, often a symbol of rebirth and like the cycle of, of growth and like the return of life each spring. So it's something that's, I don't know, kind of a, I'm trying to think of the right words. It's a type of deity on which there are a lot of different versions or, you know, yeah, specific ones of the type. More of a category, I guess, of gods. Which is interesting that, like, this sort of rebirth turning point turns up in the story when you've got within the book where Scrooge does not hate Christmas and does not have an obsession for money mm -hmm. and then gets back to that point in the end. And also with, like, the time it was being written, I mentioned that, like, they were sort of reevaluating Christmas traditions, but it was also, like, when Christmas trees really started being a thing mm -hmm. was around this time. So it's that sort of, some of those pagan traditions coming in there as well. Mm. Yeah. Makes sense. Anyway, shall we move on to the big question? Sure. So what do you think? Well, we said that there isn't a big question that the work asks as such, but what's your big question about the work? So I would like to discuss whether or not Scrooge actually becomes a better person from the beginning to the end of these stories. And I say stories because I really feel like we kind of have two here between the Muppet version and the original version. Okay. Well, let's take the original version first. Okay. My first instinct is to say no, but I think it depends on how you define good mm -hmm. and how much your motivations matter. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that there are particular philosophers that I could bring up at this moment, but it's been too long since I've read them and too long since I've watched an episode of The Good Place mm. to be able to bring those up. But that the to be a good person, do you have to have good intentions? So if if not, then you know Scrooge goes from being a miserly person that everyone hates and wouldn't you know mourn the loss of. I was thinking of various colourful phrases that I didn't want to use, um, but effectively that wouldn't help you if in your hour of need, mm. um, to being someone who goes out of their way to try and help the needy, to donate to charity, all this good stuff. To be a good and generous employer. A good member of the community. Mm -hmm. But the reason that he does it in the book is that someone turns up and says, if you don't do these things, bad things will happen to you. I don't think it's quite as simple as that because I think at the beginning, like if it was just the visitation from Marley and maybe the ghost of Christmas yet to come, then I would say yes. But the experiences that we see him have with the ghost of Christmas past and the ghost of Christmas present, where he starts to see, you know, the choices he's made to alienate people over his life, the decisions he's made, and also the ways that his practices and his views have negatively affected other people and are likely to result in the suffering of others and he sees that he's regretful and he starts wanting to change his ways do things differently he regrets the ways he's handled recent opportunities to do something good that he squandered and you know cries at various points not in mm. fear and that's before he sees the ghost of christmas yet to come that he's died and no one cares and then at the end, when he does decide to do charitable things, like he does some an anonymous charity as well. Like he, I believe he donates a lot of money to charity anonymously. Yeah. And he also sends the like giant prize winning turkey to the Cratchit's house anonymously. 
as well as coming and being like, hey, you know, I've been a terrible boss and I'm going to raise your salary because you should have more money. So in addition to doing stuff publicly, that's better. He does stuff privately, that's better. But I guess there's still the motivation issue of like, oh, but it's because I don't want to go to hell, basically. Yeah, I guess that like, if he woke up after the ghost of Christmas present, before the ghost of the spirit of Christmas yet to come has shown up Mm -hmm. and shown him how horribly his he'll be remembered and what his legacy is he would probably still do at least some of the stuff that he's done because he has had those moments of like oh i wish i could go and say something to that person or i wish Mm -hmm. i hadn't treated that person like that yeah and that at least doesn't seem to be consciously tied to the fear of molly but like the christmas yet to come does put so much weight on fear that it'd be hard to forget it yeah but okay i can i can see a nuanced argument there as to whether or not to what extent his motivation is corrupt there. Yeah, I think that the... I, I want to say that before he sees the ghost of Christmas yet to come, he already has made some statements of wanting to be a better person at that point. Yeah. And, like, having seen how misguided he's been with the way that he has viewed other people and his financial priorities and not recognizing how callous a lot of his views have been and just writing huge swaths of the population off as you know not worth doing anything for not worth considering yeah Yeah. surplus population so he already kind of regrets that and i feel like he he has a bit of a feeling like a punch in the gut of like oh wow i've been a horrible human being and this is these are the actual human beings that i'm hurting yeah so he probably has become a better person in that. I don't know whether it's as good of a person as it perhaps makes out, but like the the end result is that the general community is happier, which you know, mm-hmm. is an important step. Sure, and it does, you know, also back to the question of you know, do you judge a, whether someone is good by their intentions or by their results? And if it's purely results based and the good he does in the community and like the ongoing effects of paying his workers more, be you know, giving making their lives happier you know because going back to that whole idea of deciding whether or not your employee's service is a pleasure or toil or whatever the quote was before he's decided to be a better boss and that improves people's lives they'll have more money they'll be happier they'll feel less strained in their lives you know he's giving money to charity easing other burdens in the community so if it's just results then yes but i do see your point with the motivations being a little unclear i think there's argument for it at least having improved because he's been reminded of the value of others and some of the times that he did enjoy christmas and of the connections he did have that he valued and you know i think it's it's easy to tell yourself that other people don't matter and you don't need friends or family when you don't have anyone around but then when you're like viscerally reminded oh remember how close you were with your sister and remember the great times you had when you had a nice boss and a community and friends and it's like oh yeah that that was pretty great (laughs) yeah so do you have a different answer for the film i do have a different answer for the film i do think that they kind of cut a lot of the stuff in the film that is in the book to give you a little bit more about who he is and how Mm -hmm. he as you say he starts out kind of miserly and hating christmas and only valuing money in the movie and i don't think there's i think it is mostly based on fear and he is very public about you know all of the charity and like bringing the turkey to the cratchits and stuff he does it himself rather than doing it anonymously and yeah so 
Well, you know, there's nothing that, like, a small family house would enjoy on Christmas Day more than half of the fucking city turning up on their doorstep. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that, like, they do a decent amount of not showing some of the nicer points. Like, in the book, in the movie, he notably goes to the Bob Cratchit house instead of to his nephew's house, which might just be because Kermit and Miss Piggy are there and we want to have more screen time with the actual Muppets. But with not going to his nephew's place, like, it makes sense in a way because in the vision... He does go at the end. He brings them lots of presents. He, he goes and brings the presents, but he doesn't go and, like, stay and have dinner and play games with them, which is That's what happens true. in the book. Yeah. But during the Christmas present visit mm-hmm. in the book, he goes and sees and they play games and he's watching and sort of trying to join in the games despite the fact that he's incorporeal there. Mm-hmm. And then, like, and they, he's having fun. And he's having fun. And then there's one game where they say something a bit mean about him, but then they toast to his health. Whereas in the film, like, they turn up and it's the game where they say something mean about him, and then they leave. Yeah. And he's un- understandably upset because he doesn't get any context for it. So him then returning to visit them at the end of the movie for dinner would not make as much sense in that context, but does mean that there's less room for you to see mm-hmm. him grow more fond of people and for him to do more charity that and like community building that is not also self-aggrandizing. Yeah, and I, I do think it's important that you're talking about the scene that was very cut down in the movie because a big part of that scene is his nephew before the game, we were talking about where he, you know, they end up saying some kind of mean things about Scrooge. He tells his wife that he visited Scrooge and she's like, why, you know, what's the point of trying to visit him and try to invite him for dinner and stuff? Because, you know, basically he's such a jerk and he never comes. I don't know why you waste your time. And he's like, I'm going to invite him every year. I'm going to make sure he knows like he, he probably won't come, but I'm going to make sure he knows that, you know, that door is open. I mean, he goes into it more, you know, exhaustively because Because it's it's Dickens. But (laughs) yeah, but he's basically saying, no, I know he probably won't say yes, but I want to make sure he knows that we're still his family and we still, you know, are welcoming him. And I think that's an important thing for him to hear him explain to his wife, even though he already, Fred already explained it to him, you know, he was just in such a crappy mood and wasn't really listening. So, you know, he has that context. And then, yeah, they do play the game of like, you know, I'm thinking of a thing, ask me yes or no questions, and it's Scrooge. And later they're arguing over whether he should have said yes to, is it a bear? You know, but then they're like, okay, you know, we should toast his health. You know, he's given us a nice laugh and also like he's family and things. And they, you know, he tries to make it not just a mean-spirited thing. Fred does. Yeah. So, but for the film... Does he become a better person? You're saying... I think it's less definitive. I think in the book he does become a better person, and I think in the movie it's unclear. He might just be kind of scared straight, you know, of like, ah, I'd better be a good person or I'm going to go to hell. Yeah, you do get much more of like... One of the lines from Scrooge in both of them is like, why why do you torture me so, spirit? Mm -hmm. And in the book, there's a really good answer for that. It's like, I'm showing you these things so you understand. In the film, it is maybe just more torture. It's like... Yeah. Here, you are miserable. Here's someone dumping you. (laughs) Your family laughs at you. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha ha. Yeah. Although, to be fair, one look at the Ghost of Christmas Past in the film, and you know that thing's tortured people to death before. It is pretty creepy. 
It's not as creepy as the weird, like, baby-shaped singing things in the street at one point. But... Oh, yeah, those things are horrifying in The Muppet Christmas Carol. And, like, one of them at one point, like, smushes its face in in a really weird way. No, another one smushes its face oh, in by sorry. mistake. It punches it by mistake. Yeah, and its, it's face, somehow like, worse. crumples inward. and It's real weird. Um, yeah. What do you think? Do you think there's a different answer one to the other? I think that if we're giving a categorical yes for the book, it's harder to give a no for the film because while some of the actions are more self-aggrandizing, if we're saying that intentions aren't the crucial part... I don't know that we're saying that. Yeah, I don't know that we're saying that. But I think that uh, it, it's, a, it's a thin line between the film and the book as to difference. He's certainly a better person in the book than he is in the film. I think that he is an... Im- an improved member of society in the film. Mm-hmm. I do think the film is trying to make you feel like he cares about people at the end more than he did at the beginning. Like, he gets the coal for his employees and things. But, like, I don't know. It is hard to say because it's just, like, this instantaneous euphoria. And it's hard to say how long that lasts. One of the th- reasons that I think that the book makes a better case for him being a better person is at the end, like, it talks about how he gets met with some ridicule and some backlash from like his businessman like not friends exactly but colleagues for his new generous spirit and you know better business practices and generosity and he doesn't care he he's like whatever i don't need to be popular with you guys but you don't see that explicitly but yeah but you don't see that in the movie and i think that's one of the bigger signs that he actually has made a genuine change because he commits to it and does it even when his peers and people he presumably respects disagree. Yeah. So I think we're saying, yes, a better person in the book, and probably a better person in the film. Yeah, but it's not clear whether or not it sticks. Yeah. Okay. So I think that that's a good answer to the big question. But I think the bigger question is, is it really a charitable act to bring a really poor family a ginormous turkey in the middle of Christmas Day when that shit takes hours to cook, and also really huge turkeys tend to be dry. Like, really, the charitable thing is to get two smaller turkeys that will actually taste good. So, so wait, wait, wait. We, we have to break this down. Is the issue that you're taking here that he turned up unannounced with a large raw turkey? Mm-hmm. Or that he brought a large raw turkey? Both. Okay. Both. Uh, the larger the turkey, the longer it is going to take to cook. One. Um, it is a raw turkey with, like, none of the stuff. Like, she probably does not have a pan big enough for that thing. It will take a really, really long time to cook it, and it will probably be dry. Hmm. It depends on whether we're talking about the book or the film. Because in the film, he... In the book, he just sends the turkey over. Which I think is good, because then they can do what they want with it. Mm-hmm. Like, they could, in fact, take it to a friend's larger house mm-hmm. and be like, Hey, we brought... Food for the fam- for the town, apparently. Like, mm-hmm. great. Um, whereas in the movie, A, that house has a roasting spit, not an oven. That's true. Um, which I don't know how big a roasting spit you need for a turkey that's twice the size of a small child. Which is the way that they measure the size of this turkey. Yes. But also, like, I, I think giving someone a turkey is probably a charitable act. I think that the issue I would take is the bringing everybody else that you pass on the street with you. As in the Muppet Christmas Carol? Yes. Yeah. To, to someone else's house. Yeah. Um, like, invite people over to your place for a big banquet. Don't just turn up to someone else's and invite them to cook it. Yeah, exactly. Like, you're giving, was it 
Emily? Clara? Yeah. Emily? Emily. Basically, he's brought Emily Cratchit like a massive chore that's going to take up her entire Christmas day. <laughs> although, although she does turn out at an impressive spread, there is a cooked turkey in the middle of that, which raises the question of between turning up with the raw turkey and the cooked one being put on the table, what are those 50 other people that turn up doing? Are they just. Well, she made a goose, didn't she? The one that's served at the end of the film is the turkey. Mm-hmm. Are you suggesting they eat the goose while she cooks the turkey? I mean, probably, because again, it probably takes a million years to cook it. Yeah. I mean, you have to think if this is twice the size of Tiny Tim, it's probably like a 40 pound turkey. And it's like half an hour, what is it, like half an hour per pound? That's 20 hours to roast that freaking turkey. Yeah, okay, so I think that the answer to the, that. Your bigger question is no. It's it's not. At least not without notice. Yeah, it's the lack of notice. Like, if she could have a plan or if, you know, yeah, or if there weren't just a whole bunch of people also, you just should not turn up unannounced at someone's holiday dinner. That's rude. Unless you've already had, like, an open invitation. Like, maybe if someone was like, feel free to come and you won't, you don't know even if it's last minute, that's fine. But, like, you should not just, like, bring half the town unannounced. That's it, rude. It's like those Christmas presents that you open and you go, oh, thanks, you got me a chore. Yeah. I now have to do a thing. Okay, so shall we move on to fun facts? Yes. Jules, go first. You go first. Oh, okay. So I have a couple of fun facts. The first one is that an author named John Clinch recently put out a book called Marley which is a prequel to The Christmas Carol, which tells the story of, surprisingly, Marley. I haven't read it. I just know it exists. thought it was interesting. You don't get a lot to go on in the book, though. And yet, it's a very long book. Okay. Also, like, I'm not sure what, like, he, like, we know that he dies not great as a person. I mean, I guess you'd see some prequel Scrooge stuff, who's also not a great... There's not a lot of room for character arcs there. Yeah, I mean, you know he dies still, like, miserly and mean, so... The book has got chains on the front of it, so maybe it also covers the seven years between death and meeting Scrooge. I don't know. We should read it, or one of our listeners should read it and tell us about it. Huh. Or we could look it up, but I'm not going to do that. I will maybe read it at some point. It is interesting that it exists. Anyway. So this is notably one of Dickens' shorter works. Mm-hmm. Um, Dickens is known for writing in serial format, chapters out every so often, all this jazz, lots of words to make sure he fleshes it out so that he can do an entire chapter on a meal and then he gets paid for the chapter. Yeah. This one isn't like that, which might seem strange until you look up why. His sales had been dropping on his books and his publisher was going to reduce his salary and he had a fifth child on the way. So he needed money. Um, so he managed to crank this book out in six weeks, finishing it in early December for a December 19th publication date. Um, they finally got the final printing ready for it two days before publishing. He, he needed that money quick, is what I'm hearing. So I think that's why uh, it's a little bit shorter. That being said, uh, it has never been out of print since it was published in 1843. Uh, my final fun fact is... Um, my useless information, fun fact, uh, which is the book opens with a conversation about doornails. Mm-hmm. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know, of my own knowledge, what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of, of ironmongery in the trade, but the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, 
and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country is done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. So I do know what's dead about a doornail, because my brain is full of useless information. The way that they used to make doors was to hammer a nail through two planks, and then hammer the other end of it down so that it couldn't be pulled back out. And because it couldn't be pulled out, it was known as a dead nail. So if a nail is bent over like that, it's dead, used indoors, therefore dead as a doornail, is just huh. a weird little play on that. Interesting. So thus is deader than a coffin nail, which you would not have a particularly good reason for deading. Deading. Deadening? Deadening. We'll go with that. That must be the word for it. Huh. Clearly you knew that and Dickens didn't. Well, Dickens didn't have Google. Mm. Um, which I'm assuming that I googled that at some point in my life because I read it and went, I know why. So neat. That's my one useful thing in like rattling around in my brain at this point. And it's only useful because we're doing a podcast about it. That's my fun fact. Okay, I had some fun facts about the Muppet Christmas Carol. Oh, perfect because I forgot all about that. So, making Kermit walk took ten puppeteers. I can believe it. There is a scene where. Kermit, as Bob Cratchit, walks down the street with Robin the Muppet, Robin as his son Tiny Tim, sitting on his shoulder. Um, and this was also Brian Henson's first, his directorial debut after his father, Jim Henson, had died two years previous. And it was a huge accomplishment as part of his directorial debut because no one had done this before, I guess. So, yeah. Apparently he, it, yeah, not only did it take 10 puppeteers, but Kermit was actually walking on a cobblestone textured rolling barrel. You're nodding as if you knew that already. I worked out when watching the film where I was, I was watching the Muppet walk down the street and I was going, that shouldn't work. How are they doing that? And they've got a stationary background behind it and then a rolling thing to make it look like the path's moving under his feet and then his feet are just going up and down. Ah. Not that I fail at suspending my disbelief in any way. I definitely didn't notice that, so. My other fun fact is that apparently Michael Caine took this role, at least according to an interview he had with uh, the BBC, so that his seven-year-old daughter could watch him on the big screen. She was seven at the time that he did it. Um, yeah. Which is just adorable. Michael Caine is one of the actors, kind of like Nicolas Cage, who takes a lot of roles because he has bills to pay, mm-hmm. like has gone out and said, like, acting is a job. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I take a role because it sounds fun, and sometimes I take it because I've got to put my kids through college. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, uh, that's the other fun fact I missed out on, is uh, if you want to go back and watch the Muppet film again, it's a really fun way to do it, is to pretend that Michael Caine didn't know he was going to be in a Muppets film, and that they were all added in post. Mm. That's right, fun facts. Nice. Cool. Uh, so that's this week's episode. Next week, um, our episode will be coming out on Christmas Day, or as we like to call it, Late Yule. Mm-hmm. We'll be doing um, another Christmas episode because there are lots of Christmas things. We can sit back since we made our schedule. We keep going, oh, we should have done that film for Christmas. So we're not doing Die Hard or Hook, but we are doing um, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and you can probably expect the other two of those next year, if we're still doing this. And then after that, we are not yet certain what we're doing. But we'll hopefully know before we record the next episode if there is anything that you would like us to do. Any books, films, TV series, songs, 
anything that can be classified as a story, you can let us know. Um, along with any other feedback, comments, or discussion, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Unramblings, and on Twitter at Unramblings Pod, or you can email us directly at unramblingspodcast at gmail dot com. Uh, also, feel free to use the hashtag Unramblings, and we will try and chime in on any discussions you have with that. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe, and tell all your friends. We're getting a bit of a following picking up, which is nice, but we'd love to see more people talking about it. Thank you for listening to Unramblings. We hope you'll tune in next week. If you had the opportunity to listen to an author read their work for six straight hours, would you do it? That would really depend on the author. Because some people are good at performing and other people really aren't. From what I've heard about Dickens' performances, like he was a good performer. Mm. So I think probably if it was Dickens, like performing A Christmas Carol, like that seems to have been a pretty good show. It was the first one he performed that way and the last one he performed that way before he died. So he clearly was very committed to that performance and like had a whole prompt version of it and everything but there are other people who i don't think would be as good in terms of engaging the audience and really painting a picture dickens today for example right because he's dead <laughs> be a really lifeless performance indeed it would <laughs> <laughs> the most tasteful joke <laughs> You know when you have those moments of I shouldn't say that and then you say it anyway? Yes. Anyway, let's not use that. I think we should. Okay.